0: Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. Caleb and I discussed two of our favorite shows a few episodes back, MASH and Scrubs, both medical dramedies, and we found a lot of comparisons to make. The unstoppable wit of Hawkeye and Dr. Cox, how both shows address death really for the first time with their episodes Sometimes You Hear the Bullets and My Old Lady. Both shows even have an episode called Fallen Idol, or My Fallen Idol, with very similar situations as one show influenced the other. If you haven't already, I would strongly encourage going back and listening to that episode, though you can do that after you finish this one. It's not like it's a prerequisite. Our inspiration for our conversation today comes from two different arenas that we'll focus primarily on, two films and two legendary directors. We also have two guests in studio. Jane Martin is a professor at the University of St. Francis. The number of people who have been on this podcast who have been a student in Jane's classroom is six, though today we'll make it seven. Our second guest is my brother Don who I can credit with introducing me to a lot of the pop culture cornerstones that have fueled this podcast. Present for, if not responsible for, my first viewings of Star Wars, Batman 89, and The Fellowship of the Ring, and so on. Welcome to you both. Thank Thank you, you. Dan. Good to be here. So given our conversation today is centered around Alfred Hitchcock and Steven Spielberg, maybe we can start by each of you telling me, If not your first, but maybe if you don't remember your first experience with each director, maybe one of your most memorable experiences of their work and whoever wants to lead off May.
1: I guess I would have encountered Spielberg first. I can remember staying up late for uh, Jaws with mom and and a friend. I couldn't have been more than seven. The blood coming out of Robert Shaw's mouth there at the end had stuck with me from that viewing a few years later i saw hook in the theaters hitchcock kind of came fully formed into my psyche because i was a child of nick at night it wasn't even his art it was the persona first and but by middle school i caught up with rear window and the birds shortly thereafter and then it was kind of off to the races and yeah just a a very catalyzing figure in terms of being a person who loves movies
2: I would probably have to say with Hitchcock, it was watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents on television, the reruns when I was a kid, just the mystery and stories about human intrigue, because I was very interested in The Twilight Zone and all those shows. So I, I would say that was my introduction. And then I started absorbing the movies that were on television, and as I went through school, just started to like a bulk of his work, particularly i now you know that after I became a film teacher, I could say, oh, it was from fifty five to fifty nine that I really enjoyed most of his work, but I also did a kind of a deeper dive into him and in my graduate studies. And he was, everybody had to kind of pick a director to be tested on. And he was my director to be tested on. Um, uh, Not a smart move because of the, you know, when you direct 60 or are involved in 100 different movies. That's a lot to know. But uh, some I felt pretty comfortable with. Spielberg... uh, I remember seeing Duel on television, and it was so fantastic. And doing some research for this, I didn't realize how much Hitchcock influenced the way he shot Duel. I remember watching, I think it was uh, Night Gallery that he directed with, um, I think it was Joan Crawford, and he directed Columbo, and I love Columbo. So it kind of got an early introduction to him, but... Probably the most personal story when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and going to school and trying to figure out graduate study, I went to see The Color Purple. And, uh, you know, it's a great Alice Walker novel, but just the way that he captured the story and I went to see it by myself because I really like seeing some films by myself. I just sat there mesmerized and said, I want to know how he did this. So much more. So I went to graduate school. So I I would say it's kind of interesting to pull the two together because I like both directors and then have different relationships with them in some of their work. But I like them because they care about their audience. And I think that's a a good space to come from as a director.
0: Just the mention of the title for Duel threw me back well over a decade to watching some like bonus features and content on Jaws and Spielberg talking about figuring out what movie he was going to make next and Jaws popping up on his radar. It's like, oh, well, Duel has four letters. Jaws has four letters. Let's do that. That was the extent of the thought process at that point. We should reference, I know one class specifically that I believe Don and I both took with you was film as art. Mm-hmm. And later on, maybe we can even go through like some of the different iterations. because I know it changed even after I went through it. Like you added Black Panther and definitely yeah. the class continued to evolve and there'd be a decade gap between when Don took it and when I took it. But I still remember in your film as art class when we watched Rear Window and the moment when Lisa is still in the apartment across the way and you see Thorwald coming back and so many of my classmates who hadn't seen the movie before just visibly gasping (laughs) and shaking in their seats. It's like Hitchcock still got it.
2: That's the moment in class where I never watched the movie. I watched the class because everybody's kind of shifting in their seat and very concerned. So it's, it's still a major moment of suspense.
1: I don't know that it's too curious to pull these two together because it's almost like the Keith Moon and the John Bonham of the director's list, like who's going to be one and two. I, I think when they faced off on, forgive me, on the, the animated celebrity death match, they described it as uh, the greatest living director and the greatest living director who ever lived. And uh, you know, off they went there are really interesting stories from the window or the two of their career you know where they both walked the earth and had careers and that went as far as i think spielberg uh slipping onto a soundstage it must have been family plot and seeing him from the back and having no idea how that how he registered that he was there but apparently hitchcock got up left and then somebody came out pretty shortly and Told Spielberg to leave, but they never met. And I think Hitchcock made a comment to the media at the very end of his life, which was basically like, "Yeah, Jaws and Close Encounters, all of this. Like, what do you do when those are your first movies? Because you know he had a, a long, slow burn up to Phenomenon or whatever. Mm-hmm. However you want to label him. It's interesting to to see how the the Spielberg career continues to unfold now that it's almost as long and storied.
0: two specific movies out of the Hitchcock and Spielberg catalogs Vertigo and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade after over 60 years or 30 years I shouldn't have to say this but spoiler alert for both movies now going in let's start with just what are your overall impressions of each film before we start breaking them down.
2: I can start with Vertigo. I'm not going to be as strong on Last Crusade. And fair disclaimer, everybody has their favorite Hitchcocks. And this is not one of mine. And I'm just going to be super honest about it. I was really excited that I got the opportunity to talk about it today, though, because there are a lot of things about Vertigo, which I think shows in my viewing of his work as a shift and a change, especially a change in the way that I even view Jimmy Stewart in his work, who is a very strong character. So this gave me a chance to really dig into some research. So I have to be fair, the strength that the other pieces and the experimentation, dial-in and, and rope with the, you know, the nine, 11-minute shots has always been been interesting to me but when we get to vertigo some of it doesn't feel like it integrates into the film as beautifully as it did in the past like the dream sequence with the animation is not as clean to me as the dream sequence in spellbound mm-hmm. that he worked with dolly to mm-hmm. do so i think one of the things that makes both directors strong is collaboration And I just see Vertigo being a space where Hitchcock is moving out of collaboration with people and into his kind of focusing on his work. I always feel like Spielberg is a very collaborative director, working with his actors, working with his camera people, working with everyone to get their kind of uh, perspective, even at times saying, "Okay, let's try that in a different way. What do you feel like would work? That is not anything Hitchcock would ever do in any way. Actually, he he has said he would rather actors not speak. He diminished their lines as much as possible. He would go through and take away dialogue as much as he possibly could, because it was all about visual. And in the medium, the stories that are told, they need a little bit of both, obviously, in this way. So going and looking at at Vertigo this way, it was a really good lesson for me uh, to kind of sit back and, and, and kind of assess it. Spielberg, He has just the ability to make me feel fascinated all the time with the way he shoots everything. One of the strongest shots in film to me is always the shot from Jurassic Park where they see the dinosaurs for the first time. And goodness both, the way they use music, both of them have the greatest collaborators to build their soundtracks, Bernard Herrmann and Don Williams. They just build the music in such a way that makes me feel. So just the strength of The awe that he gives the audience when he shows them something or the energy that he creates, which I think is really one of the cornerstones of his work.
0: In referencing Jurassic Park as I was going through and prepping for this episode, and this will segue nicely into the other movie that we're going to talk about with Last Crusade. There were multiple opportunities later in their careers for Sean Connery and Harrison Ford to collaborate again, the last of which would have been Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The first of which would have been Hunt for Red October if... Ford had taken the part that went to Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. But right between them, or closer to *Hunter Red October, they both could have potentially been in Jurassic Park and both turned down the parts. Anyway, on to Last Crusade, which, Don, I guess if you wanted to jump in with impressions on that one, because, again, I'm fairly certain we were in the room together for my first viewing.
1: Uh, sure. I mean, I, I would just quickly note to further connote Vertigo, deeply personal movie for Alfred Hitchcock in the waning Point of just the unrivaled golden period of his output, but not a a successful film in its time. But we've seen it, I think, in the last decade or so, like surge into top positions on lists that were usually just dominated by Citizen Kane and the Godfather movies. So, definitely a well thought of film in that sense, a towering achievement, as close as we can have like objective standards for that sort of thing. Last Crusade, you have the second sequel to what i would say is a perfect movie Raiders of the Lost Ark it's like you've got the bowl of popcorn in one hand and pate in the other but this notion of like the high art and the popcorn and that you know Spielberg did Last Crusade not long after doing The Color Purple and then in the early 90s would turn around and do Schindler's List and Jurassic Park back to back but it's a second sequel that's reintegrating elements Uh, you know, like the Nazis don't come back for Temple of Doom, but they do for Last Crusade. And and now his dad's along for the right. So, I mean, there are elements of it where it's a rollicking good time, but like the non-popcorn side of your brain is like, you're trying to get me to have a really good time with this movie. You know, is this great film? But I, I I still encounter articles where writers will throw out, oh yeah, but then the best of the franchise, of course it peaked at, at Last Crusade. And it's like, it's, it's a
0: solid second.
1: It's trying to do the things that Raiders just did. And definitely uh, a formative movie for me as a film viewer. And, and I guess technically my introduction to Sean Connery. I saw Goldfinger around the time I saw Jaws. So, but I certainly didn't put it together till later.
2: Just to add to a point that you made about Vertigo, Sight and Sound magazine, which was around when it came out, just panned Vertigo. Early 2000s, it named it the best made film of all time and it surpassed Citizen Kane. So that was a really weird shift to watch. You know, when it came out, they just decimated the movie. And then later, as looking back on history, they named it the best film ever made.
1: And the contrasting point for Last Crusade would be that 89 is one of the biggest blockbuster summers On record to date to have Indiana Jones in the mix is just
0: inextricable. I guess you can look at both of these films and also look at director and long term collaborator when it comes to Spielberg and Harrison Ford and coming along for a third Indiana Jones Mm -hmm. film. And if I'm remembering correctly, Vertigo was the end of the working relationship with Jimmy Stewart, because I think Hitchcock blamed part of the film's lack of success on the fact that, oh, Stewart is too old to be a viable leading man.
2: He did talk about how old he was, that he had always seemed old. In many ways.
1: I don't remember who it was that I was reading who said, Rear Windows, the first time you realize he's playing something written for a younger man. And I curse that person to this day because I can't unhear it slash unsee it when I watch it now.
2: You know, when you watch a movie from today's standard of what masculine is or what a man is, he doesn't hold up well then because the standards are just unreasonably high now. It doesn't feel fair. In comparison of what the expectation of a man on the screen is now versus then.
0: Before I mention one of the kind of central ideas that pulls these two movies together, uh, Jane, you have a book on the table with you today with uh, a lot of information about uh, Alfred Hitchcock. What do you have with you?
2: This is The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spotto. There's a good section on Vertigo.
0: As I was starting to prep for this, I went digging through... YouTube and it's not posted anymore but there was a channel called Nerd Writer that did an entire video on vertigo in talking about blocking a scene and how you can use how you block different shots the actors the cameras to tell a story and the example that Nerd Writer used is the scene very early in the film when Elster asks Scotty to follow his wife The first time seeing this, you might not necessarily perceive what the camera is trying to tell you, but when Scotty and Elster are first interacting, Scotty is standing, Elster is kind of avoiding his questions, avoiding eye contact, looking out the window, and Scotty is moving about, he's in the foreground a little bit, it kind of shows where the power dynamics are at, and then as the conversation goes on, the blocking starts to change, and so with it, the dynamics... When Gavin gets up after Scotty sits to tell him why he wants Scotty to follow his wife. And he, when he says the words, someone dead, the camera is panning up to him. And we see Elster taking power of the situation. Scotty goes to leave. Elster approaches him. And then Elster goes back to this upper area in his office. And it's almost like he is on a stage as a performer in the theater. And Scotty is his audience. He goes and sits down at the opposite end of the room and, Elster continues to give him more details of his wife's situation as he is luring Scotty into his deception. And then when he finally comes down and one of the final shots of that scene even has Elster in the foreground kind of superimposed over Scotty. And now Elster is in command and he has brought Scotty into this web. In thinking about that scene in trying to think about a scene that's functionally similar Actually, I think very early on, Don, you and I realized Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and the conversation with Donovan serves a very similar function. We have a protagonist meeting early on in the movie with a character who we don't realize at that point is trying to lure the protagonist into a deception, although there are certainly a few different dynamics at play. I can't imagine
1: something more daunting than trying to write an Indiana Jones sequel. If I'm Steven Spielberg and I love the things that i love you know it's like keith richards says when you play everything you've ever heard comes out and uh, as you and i just kind of peeled back the wrapper ever so slightly on this one we kind of found out that uh yeah if you wanted to write or build an indiana jones sequel on an alfred hitchcock chassis last crusade does have a kind of persistent vertigo streak running through it that you could say could have served as like you know the string that the popcorn is getting uh threaded onto you have a movie where our uh, our our masculine hero is involved in a kind of acrobatic chase Uh, where he encounters some trauma that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Fast forward a little ways, he's approached by a shady industrialist and, as you say, lured into this adventure involving someone long dead. He encounters a cool blonde. Their relationship is solidified after an aquatic misadventure. Uh, and eventually
0: she falls to her death. Uh, and both movies have plenty of falling set pieces, whether we are talking about the mission or, again, yeah. the chase at the beginning of Vertigo, or whether we are talking about two of the three grail challenges as well as the tank sequence ending uh, in mm-hmm. Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. And dolly zooms, yes. Yes, indeed. There's so many areas of overlap, although when I was looking at the starting scene, the the initial part of the deception, I very much appreciated that the while the function is similar... The execution is very much different in terms of how Donovan weaves his deception. The focus is less on blocking and more on contrast and prop craft because before the scene with Donovan even starts, Indy's kind of surrounded on a couple sides by some men in hats that are in shadows. You can't see who's approaching him. The the John Williams score, it's a bit of an ominous note. And then bright surroundings, beautiful room, welcoming benefactor in a suit uh, who is quite friendly initially don't see that no 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 this is a continuation (laughs) the the that donovan is going to wind up being the big bad i guess you could say and you have as well the prop craft of the scene in that donovan has all the elements in the room from his collection that he needs to tell the story and to bring into into his deception looking at old grail artifacts talking about his history with his father in the grail and then If there's a line that sticks out similar to someone dead in Vertigo, it's the last shot with your father is the man who is missing, or I can't remember exactly what he says. I think that's close. And you just see the hat kind of drop a little bit with how Spielberg frames the shot. So with those two elements side by side, the Vertigo plotline elements that pop up in Last Crusade, again, functionally hitting so many of the same beats. And then the only real difference with Last Crusade is you add in the father-son dynamic And you build out a little bit of what is the specific MacGuffin or the specific mystery. Because I think if I remember right, the original proposal from George Lucas for the third Indiana Jones film was like a haunted house scenario. And Spielberg had done Poltergeist and did not want to go there again.
1: (laughs) But that gets into kind of the whole, like, how many different kinds of popcorn are we going to thread on here? Like, it's fun, Spielberg. And that brings us kind of more to the rear window side of things in that this is Spielberg doing A movie about movies in a sense what's the lineage of indiana jones as a franchise or a character literally james bond you know like but even you know raiders and star wars are you know movies about movies in the influence sense that it's it's the the saturday matinee and it's buck rogers and it's caked into their dna like we're making movies about the movies we love so why shouldn't he riff on beloved Hitchcock that hasn't had its release from the vault
3: mm-hmm. just
1: yet by 1989. I think ninety eight yeah. or seven was when Vertigo made its grand re-entrance into the world.
2: I actually found some research where someone had pulled some information. There was a, a scene that they never shot for North by Northwest about the character running through a factory where they're building a car and being trapped in the cars it's built which Spielberg does in Minority Report, which I thought was a lovely kind of thing because as someone who studies film, nobody makes a film without a reference. I mean, really, you don't. It's hard because it's just like being a painter or an artist or a musician. All these things influences you. Spielberg being influenced by Hitchcock is the greatest respect Hitchcock could get, whether he might not agree with that or not. But it is a great respect and finding pieces of film history like this was planned for this, but it didn't get to be. I'm going to try that because I bet that would be super cool if somebody had a great idea. I'm going to try that idea. So I think to me, great filmmakers have great references and Hitchcock innovated so many different... He innovated sound in film. He innovated... He he tried 3D. He tried things. And Spielberg has tried things, too. Now, sometimes the the audience doesn't like it, or critics don't like it when you try things. But you are trying to improve cinema or get the audience to feel a different thing. And that's a great place for a director to be.
0: My wife, Melissa, and I are currently going through the MCU films in chronological order, and we actually just watched Iron Man 2. And there's a line from Howard Stark where he says, I am limited by the technology of my time. And it's always fun to think about creators of potentially half a century ago, and what could they do with today's toys and possibilities. As far as Hitchcock and innovation goes, I know, Don, you already referenced uh, the Dolly Zoom, but I know, Jane, you have brought in Some additional research and expertise to bear when it comes to the iconic effect of vertigo, how we get the sensation of falling or we get to experience the acrophobia that Scotty does in the movie. And it's definitely popped up in the Spielberg
2: canon. I found a quote by Hitchcock, which I thought was really funny. He wanted to create that kind of effect. And when he made Rebecca... And Rebecca is just a, a fantastic film. He said, I wanted to show how she felt that everything was moving far away from her before she toppled over. And then this is something he said. He said, I always remember one night at the Chelsea Arts Ball at the Albert Hall in London when I got terribly drunk. And I had the sensation that everything was going far away from me. He said, I wanted to try to get that into Rebecca, but they couldn't do it. The viewpoint must be fixed while the perspective changes, and it stretches lengthwise. And he said, I thought about that problem for 15 years, and by the time we got to Vertigo, we solved it by the Dolly Zoom simultaneously. And then he asked how much it would cost to do that, and they said it would cost $50,000, and that was not in the budget because the apparatus to hold a camera was too expensive. So because there are no characters in the scene and it was just the viewpoint, they built a miniature and that's how they shot that. And it still costs $15,000. It is so interesting now that you can watch a YouTube video on how to do it without even shooting it. If you just shoot in 4K, you can use After Effects to kind of to slightly pull it off. It will not make it feel the same way. But just the technology that we have and, and the way that we're able to do it now, is kind of amazing. I also found a plethora of names for it. It's called the Vertigo Zoom, the Hitchcock Zoom, the Push-Pull, the Zolly was my favorite, Trans-Tav, Smash Zoom, Stretch Shot, Smash Shot, Trombone Shot, Retrograde Shot, Zydo, Contra Shot, Triple Reverse, and Reverse Zoom. I mean, they just have all these names for it. Many people do call it the Vertigo Shot. Mm. And my favorite has got to be the shot from Jaws when Brody realizes what's happening. I think it is the best executed there. It kind of gives me chills because it really shows his state of mind. It really shows his realization. And a Zoom is a tricky thing to use because when you see a Zoom, who's watching it always goes, my mind won't, my eye doesn't do that. But it is so integrated into the storytelling of Jaws that all you do is feel it. And I just think it's perfect in that. So I feel like Spielberg really perfected it with that moment, with the emotional impact of it, the audience's view, and the strength of that shot.
0: And it pops up in some of the most memorable set pieces of the Indiana Jones films, whether we're talking about the boulder or whether Mm -hmm. we're talking about, again, the numerous falling moments in Last Crusade. I think as Indy and the tank are approaching the cliff might be another example.
1: Well, I don't think... He wants to do one, he being Spielberg, so badly when Harrison Ford sees the cliff. Um, it's like there was a dolly zoom in his heart at that moment. But you had to point out to me that if you actually want to see the technique, it's like when Sean Connery's lying there shot, telepathically communicating with his son, and the lion's head that's behind him is pulling closer as uh, Indiana Ferguson prepares to step uh into the into the void and the leap from the lion's head.
2: I should be careful to say that the person who actually executed it was mm. Erman Roberts. He was a Paramount second unit cameraman on Vertigo, and he's the one who executed the shot. So he designed it and shot it. Scorsese uses it a lot, too. That could be its own thing, the influence <laughs> of, of Hitchcock on Scorsese, but he uses it a lot as well. And it shows up in The Lord of the Rings because... They use that piece very well.
0: I did just look up numbers wise, like what it, one of those shots would have cost, and there was some data on Vertigo, like the one of the shots, or maybe, or perhaps it was like the all of the shooting they did in the tower for the mission, and doing the Roberts zoom effect, like that one shooting day was like $19,000, which translates into like $175,000 in today's money just for the one (laughs) section of filming. And that's not actors.
2: That's not anything. That's just the shooting. Yeah.
0: Mm. Before we kind of talk a little bit about going forward and kind of the legacies of each of these movies, I know we've uh, talked both while on the mics and before the mics are on kind of about the different eras, especially when it comes to Hitchcock and Don, you mentioned that there is a connection with Connery that leads us back to Hitchcock. And then, of course, he's in Last Crusade. So we, we, there, there's, a, there's some additional connective tissue there. We can get to Connery, but the
1: bridge that you have to cross here is Grace Kelly. Because ultimately, if there's a thematic link between these movies, it's about people who are destroyed by their obsessions. You've got uh, Henry Jones Sr.'s Lifelong Pursuit of the Grail. And then, you know, the villains of the movie who kind of succumb to it in his place. And the fact that the reason Vertigo is a deeply personal movie is that uh, Alfred Hitchcock never got over uh, the loss of Grace Kelly from Hollywood when she became Princess Grace of Monaco in 54. Five right after mm-hmm. I think she met her husband while shooting to catch a thief. I think,
2: I think so. Yes,
1: so he played himself, you know, but not like in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents way. But you see in his film him kind of pivoting from replacement to replacement the icy blonde,
2: and the fact that Kim Novak was not who he wanted, he wanted Vera Miles, mm-hmm. and he couldn't get Vera Miles because she was expecting. A third child, mm-hmm. which he was not kind about to her in any way. And then at that moment, so he got Kim Novak kind of on a loan. And then when it was time to shoot the movie, actually Vera Miles was available and he wouldn't bring her back to the film. and he And he never really was complimentary of Kim Novak in any way in the film, though she she does a wonderful job with the part, and it's a very difficult part to me. But that painful moment where he thought VR Miles was going to be the replacement for Kelly, and because she was the new kind of perfect Nordic blonde that he had been looking for, and then the devastation of, of not being able to have her, and then... The painful thing about the film where you watch the film is about him making a woman into another woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is always what Hitchcock is doing. Yeah. And that's actually my painfulness with this film. Because, uh, you know, Grace Kelly in Rear Window, she has such agency. She has strength. And this, to me, is the space where in Hitchcock's movies, the women are losing all their agency and all their strength. They're cold. I have this quote I can read. And this is Hitchcock. And I think this is what this was my painful journey in Vertigo, because when I found this, I was like, oh, I have to kind of manage my whole thought about Hitchcock a little bit more. And this is his comment on suspense, but it's not. A comment on suspense at all. Suspense is like a woman. The more left to the imagination, the more excitement. The conventional big bosom blonde is not mysterious, and what could be more obvious than the old black velvet and pearls type? The perfect woman of mystery is one who is blonde, subtle, and Nordic. Movie titles like women should be easy to remember without being familiar, intriguing but never obvious, warm yet refreshing, suggest action, not impassiveness, and finally give a clue without revealing the plot. Although I do not profess to be the authority on women, I fear that the perfect title, like the perfect woman, is difficult to find. A woman of mystery is one who also has a certain maturity and whose actions speak louder than words, and any woman can be one if she keeps these two points in mind, she should grow up and shut up. And if you pay attention to his women in the films, this is the point where I really feel that that's what happens to them. They are quiet. They are made over. This was a hard space for me because I do enjoy the women, especially Thelma Ritter in Rear Windows, Mm -hmm. just a joy. Mm -hmm. And I don't, enjoy the women after this point in his work and I really feel you know whatever that dark space that you kind of keep uh, referencing I, I think you've put that so beautifully because in this movie you watch Jimmy Stewart's character make a woman over and it's painful he makes her the object of his desire we've suddenly I think got a feeling that that's what we've been watching Hitchcock do all along
1: it's pretty confessional Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's confessional or hubris that he's just putting it right on the screen. A, a very glib part of me is like the only Indiana Jones franchise parallel to the phenomenon you just described is that the starting point is Karen Allen. Mm-hmm. But to get back to the track of how these movies uh, have intertwining lineages is that we have to you know, give shout outs to Doris Day and Eva Marie Saint and Janet Leigh. And Vera Miles playing second fiddle in Psycho, mm-hmm. and then Hitchcock finds Tippy Hedren for The Birds and for its follow-up Marnie, and their relationship was very dark and
2: Marnie. toxic, and it, mm-hmm.
1: and it's all him. And so, yes, she plays opposite Sean Connery in Marnie, and which is just an incidence of of, of casting. But in that way, Connery does share a link into that aspect of the dark side of of Hitchcock.
2: You know, this is where you could get into that lovely argument people want to have to talk about an auteur, mm. and with an auteur director, really seeing a personality in the work. You know, and, and and Hitchcock is kind of the the person auteur is written to shape around, and we are seeing his personality reflected in his work. People will say is Spielberg an auteur, and I'm like, no, I think. Spielberg is an amazing craftsman. And people want to talk about Altruer being the pinnacle of being a filmmaker. And I don't think it is. It's one way to define a filmmaker. It's one way to say that someone's a filmmaker. Whereas Spielberg's a craftsman who has so many tools at his disposal. He can make many different kinds of films, which is not true of Hitchcock. He doesn't make a great variety of styles of films. His films Mm. all fit well kind of one grouping of suspense and and I mean he makes one sort of comedy, it's awfully dark, but all of his films are, you know, that kind of suspense thriller. Space, Whereas Spielberg has a tremendous variety of work he can accomplish. And to me, one film that everyone should see, Schindler's List. I mean, that's just a tremendous accomplishment in cinema. That auteur where we're seeing part of a person's personality really comes out for Hitchcock. And I think we see, in, in, in Spielberg, we see stories that are super important to him and stories that he wants to tell and stories of oppression for some groups of people that that he does masterfully. But very different way of looking at it to me.
1: If there were like a reflection, I would argue that like just as Hitchcock's issues are what are like splashing at you in mm-hmm. his auteur with was perhaps, well, no, it, it has its moments as well it being Schindler's List, his movies wink at you and twinkle to where even if it's like Poltergeist, not a Toby Hooper, uh, that there, there are just those moments where it's a movie watching Refrain around my house, you know, effing Spielberg. Like there's the, the moment <laughs> where it's like this just got super cute and knows how funny it is and then moves on. And I, I wish I had like a, a litany of those moments, but I mean, it is, just two one. It's the same set of eyes winking at you.
2: Do you think that nod is, it's just a movie? It is, it's a movie. It's a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's referencing a movie often. Mm. Because many of his things, I mean, you know, you look at AI <laughs> and you think about the ending of that and it's just, it's got to be hopeful, right? <laughs> right? Even though most, a lot of us feel like 20 minutes earlier, the film really felt like it ended. So I do think that there uh, this Spielberg has that need for that hopeful that that uh, I want him I want you to feel good when this is done. I want you to feel that humanity is strong and and we can overcome things and we are resilient. I don't know, Hitchcock's not doing that at all, right? But I do think he wants you to feel good about things. Not every filmmaker needs to or should do that, but that is an a, a thing that's pretty common for him that kind of and I I would connect that to that kind of twinkle yeah
0: yeah it's tonally very different but one of the references you just made did remind me of a hitchcock quote from the production of vertigo where kim novak questioned him about uh, her motivation for a specific scene and his response was let's not probe too deeply into these matters kim it's only a movie
1: (laughs) but of course it's that movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) and of course
0: it's that actor calling him on it yeah there's so much that we've already hit on with the influences of Hitchcock and Spielberg. And I guess in the, if there's any areas you feel that we haven't hit on, what are some of the influences or some of the, especially with, again, we can look at Hitchcock's entire legacy, Spielberg's ongoing, some of the biggest areas and influences that they have had in their careers as an artur, as a craftsman, and what Hitchcock is remembered for and what Spielberg will likely be remembered for
2: one comparison I would make is their name is almost a brand. And I think that's a really interesting thing for a director because Hitchcock's name became a brand. He sold it to a magazine, right? There was a magazine. He sold it to a television show, which he introduced. He became a brand. And and whether he intended to or not, I think Spielberg has become a brand, a style of filmmaking and an expectation for an audience. So You're going to see a Spielberg film and what that feels like. I mean, even to the fact that his name is above Animaniacs, right? Steven Spielberg presents, right? So I think that when you come to them, there's an expectation of what you're going to get.
1: This is just an aside, maybe not. Um, but, uh, like, the, the notion of the expectation of the art that, I don't know that Hitchcock ever went full on production company, but, you know, Spielberg has and... Uh, the only thing that this has in common with our conversation is that it centers on 1980, which was the year a year which uh, Hitchcock died and Spielberg was working on a perfect movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Somebody came to another, don't know if he's an auteur, Mel Brooks, mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, look at this uh, talented young uh, filmmaker from Montana. Here's uh, here's Eraserhead. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be great to throw some money, you know, uh-huh. at his next project?" And Mel Brooks had to start a production company because basically if people saw Mel Brooks presents The Elephant Man, they would have really gotten the wrong idea about the movie they were about to see.
2: I'm going to take that to somewhere because nobody does Hitchcock better. Nobody does better than Mel Brooks. Mm. High Anxiety is the perfect, perfect Hitchcock Moment at every time, and and I've watched other people. I watched, you know, Shutter Island and and Scorsese's doing a bit of Hitchcock and also Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But when you watch High Anxiety, there is nothing more perfectly Hitchcock than that movie. And parody is the greatest uh, example of how uh, of how someone is paying homage to. I don't think I really don't think anyone does Hitchcock better than. Mel Brooks Mm. and High Anxiety, and it is a joy to watch.
1: Similarly, um, I've heard it said that the best Talking Heads song is Dog Eat Dog by Weird Al Yankovic.
2: (laughs) Yes, because to truly parody something, you have to know it inside out. And and I do think the best Hitchcock movie is the best parody or the best homage (laughs) or the best example of what he can do is Brooks. It's interesting. I, both of these people leaving a legacy. As filmmakers, they are filmmakers, I think, that always serve their audience or try to serve. I, I think at, at some point, Hitchcock, as you kind of went into a darker space, where especially when we get to Frenzy. When we, I, can't, I can't even watch Frenzy. It, it disturbs me so much. When we get to there, the audience, is, is I'm not feeling his connection to it, but Spielberg's still connecting to it, but in his heyday, truly connecting with an audience. I I would say both of them, I feel, mostly did.
0: The last idea that kind of ties to this, ties to the Mash and Scrubs episode would be, is there another set that comes to mind? Or maybe it'll be a few months and another kind of hanging thread that leads to the idea of two things that people don't think of. Oh, this is obviously connected to this. But then as soon as you start to peel back the curtain a little bit, you can see some obvious connections, whether, again, it's the medical dramedies and TV shows with Mash and Scrubs, or whether we're talking about two films, two different decades, two different eras and genres that we had with Vertigo and The Last Crusade. If there's an obvious example that comes to mind. No, but in my head canon,
1: the 1970s remake of King Kong is actually a prequel to the Big Lebowski with an early misadventure of the dude. Because <laughs> Jeff Bridges is playing the same character, but he incurs some trauma along the way with uh, Charles Grodin, rest in peace, and uh, Jessica Lange and a giant ape. It would mess anybody up.
0: The original Port Huron statement.
1: <laughs>
2: Mine is a direct line, but nobody thinks about it because I just got the the lovely opportunity to watch Preston Sturge's Sullivan's Travels, where the filmmaker is going to make Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I know those are directly tied, but nobody really talks about it very much. And it's this great misadventure of this director who goes on this journey to actually find out what it's like to be a real person living in America during Depression times. And I know that everybody knows that the Coens are so influenced by Preston Sturgis, who's just a joy to watch. And there's a great piece on Criterion, Bill Hader talking about how much he loves Preston Sturgis. But it is fun to, to and, and they're directly paralleled, but it's fun to pull those two together because I don't think many people think that are are actually know that the movie he's trying to make is called Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and it's just a joy to watch. There's a bus chase in that film. I, my husband and I laughed out loud so much we had to stop the film. It is just a joy. But to kind of pull all those together and kind of rediscover Preston Sturges in light of all the influence he has on the Cohens, and to watch the original Lady Killers and then the Cohens remake of it with a very strange Tom Hanks, which is a I didn't like the first time and loved the second time, really loved it. it, is just a, kind of a joy. So kind of pulling together the things that are kind of a little bit lost that have influenced. But the presence of Sullivan's Travels is just a joy.
0: Jane, Don, thank you so much for joining me on Storytelling Breakdown. We'll have to do this again sometime.
2: Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Are some voices missing from this episode so far, who you will be hearing again very soon. Caleb was unable to be a part of the conversation for today's episode, but he will be back for September's episode that fits pretty nicely into an intersection between his acting experience and my broadcasting experience. The title of this episode began with the words, Cinematic Icons, that is a phrase that will be used again for another episode later this year that Steven Stachowski is spearheading. Before I introduce our spotlighting guest, the song you just heard was Half the Way There by Lucas Norton from his 2021 release, The Lovely Lies. Please check out that album if you haven't already. The rendition of Red is the Rose from that same album was used for our Bo Burnham breakdown episode. What you're about to hear is not my first recorded conversation with Bryant Rozier. That said, last time he and I recorded together, the conversation in the studio was probably Half journalism and half comic books, with only about ten percent of the comic book content making the final cut. This time will be different, and I'll turn things over to Past Ben for this spotlight on Heart of Ice. Brian Razier, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Ben? I am doing well. So, for this spotlight, we're going to be talking about a show that I know is close to both of our hearts and a specific episode of that show. But let's start with a broader context, given uh, that this comes from Batman the Animated Series tell me a little bit about your history with Batman the character and uh, your history with the show did you grow up with it
4: I actually learned how to read by reading comic books and Batman was one of them I have no idea if it was my dad or my mom who pushed that in front of me they irrevocably steered me in that direction the rest of my life but uh, I do remember Richie Rich and Spider-Man but Batman is the one guy that kind of stuck to me as a kid I just thought it was cool that he was allowed to just hang out with Superman, hang out with Aquaman. Like your best friend could talk to fish and they let you do this thing. Like it just Gordon just says, hey Batman, you're solving crimes, you're helping us out, be Batman. And that for me was the coolest thing. And for my my Batman, and, and this has changed over the years. At first it used to be like in college, I was like, if you ask me in college, like my Batman is Tim Burton's Batman. And I'm like, okay. Then I go later on and be like, my Batman is, you know, Ben Affleck. I really love Ben Affleck's portrayal. I'm like, when I first started, and now as a almost a 43 year old man, my Batman will always be Adam West. That's my first TV version of Batman that I kind of saw, and much like my love of the Cubs, he was on all the time. So that's why I kind of fell more in love with the character. Like I'm a Cubs fan because they were on all the time. I'm a Batman fan, Adam West fan because he was on two times a day, I believe it was, when I was a kid. So yeah, that was my thing. But I, I really kind of responded to the cornball aspect of his portrayal. He was not laughing at Batman. He actually took himself really seriously. It was really kind of Adam West. And then from Adam West, it became the comic books. And of course, around that time, you're looking at the 80s, Batman was like a really serious version of Batman with the Frank Miller, Dark Knight, and Batman Year One. Also in the 80s, right around the time when they killed off Robin. I remember being in like, I think it was in the fourth or fifth grade, and I didn't get to vote, but I totally would have voted to kill him. You know, (laughs) know, the the, the contest that they had that said, okay, call this 800 number. You can vote to kill off Robin. His fate is in your hands. And I found out about it later. But yeah, the 80s was this kind of this weird period of Batman being serious, literal death in his family. But you also... Batman and Adam West was on at the same time. So he also represents this clash of ideas. I find something to gravitate to even now.
0: Well, we look at the proliferation of superhero content that's out there today, and we have to think back to coming out of the 80s and then into the 90s, the fact that Batman was appearing in different media, coming to the big screen in 89. We get Batman the Animated Series in 92, I believe, when it first started running. And we have... Also, as you were talking about the comics, the fact that we're right in the heart of the Bronze Age at that point, and we have creators, like, we, did an enti- we dedicated an entire episode of Storytelling Breakdown to the the memory of Denny O'Neill, mm-hmm. and just the way that the character changed so much from the 70s onward, kind of in reaction to the campiness of the 60s and the Adam West TV show and the Silver Age. But as we then are coming through a couple decades of some darker storytelling in the comics and some new creators coming in, not just through the world of comics, but also through the world of animation, we get this perfect storm with a show that is still revered, not just by Batman fans, but I think by comic book fans across the spectrum in Batman the Animated Series, that was just groundbreaking in so many different ways. Where do you even want to start with it?
4: Well, we have to kind of start with Tim Burton's Batman. Tim Burton's biggest worry was, well, how do we how do we separate ourselves from the Adam West Batman, which was such a predominant version of Batman for so many people? Even Bruce Tim, who's one of the big producers for the animation show, he's like, my Batman is Adam West. So how do we kind of separate ourselves from that? And his thing was, the movie is not about Batman. It's about Bruce Wayne.
0: Well, because nine times out of ten, the actor in the suit might be a stuntman. You right. right exactly. Burton wanted to get... His Bruce Wayne is someone who can embody the character when he's not wearing the cape and cowl. And Michael Keaton does do an amazing job in Batman and Batman Returns. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we have the Tim Burton Batman during this time that we see and we hear a lot of the inspiration of for Batman animated Made series because... When they were trying to figure out what they wanted the show to sound like, in addition to having the influence of Andrea Romano, who is a legendary casting director at this point for all the different voice actors that she brought into the show that did such an amazing job embodying their roles. You also had the fact that they wanted to get something comparable to the Elfman score and realized, wait a minute, who's conducting the orchestra for those movies? And they get Shirley Walker to come in and do the composition for the music for the show, which sounds very similar to the Burton Batman films. But it's still very much its own thing. And uh, before we even turn the mics on, we were kind of talking about just how each villain kind of gets its own motif. Each episode has its own opening that winds up being kind of iconic, like the the trombones of On Leather Wings oh, yeah. or the mad circus motif that you associate with the Joker. They're all iconic in their own ways. Or
4: even the title cards. It's just You're just a title card. You go right into the Two-Face story. Harvey did a story before it became Two-Face. The two biggest influences for the show, Bruce Tim. And Eric Radowski. he was the art director. Like he was the guy who, again, inspired by the Tim Burton Batman, but the fact that he took black paper and he drew colors on top of the black paper. So it's, which is kind of different when you do kind of animation. Whereas, you know, you could take a white piece of paper and then make it black. He took a black piece of paper and he put lights around it. So that's why you had those really dark shadows because it was already dark, Gotham Gotham's a dark place. It always had this look of being timeless that it existed in the 1930s and 1940s, but also Batman is using computers throughout the entire show it was something that was really kind of steeped in the look and feel of something that was a James Cagney film. And, and speaking of Cagney, um, I think, I forgot which episode of it, but Robin, he's like more or less in college and he's talking to Batman about going to school. And he's like, yeah, uh, we spent a day watching a James Cagney marathon. And I'm like, what show, What year is this show supposed to be? <laughs> like, it was either Cagney or somebody, some other like 1930s, 1940s character. And I'm like, that's incredible is the fact that like, even as a, I mean, I was in high school when this happened. So 13, 14, 15, I was aware of those, well, those movies and those influences, but yet I, something I can kind of retain and relate to of a kid talking to his father figure of something he did at school that day. It always reminded you that, Hey, we have one foot in the door of what's happening today currently for you.
0: Well, and that tracks so much with the Christmas with the Joker episode, where Robin spends the entire thing trying to convince Batman to watch It's a Wonderful Life. There's so much old
4: film and
0: media that's referenced in Batman the Animated Series. There's so many individual episodes that you could pull and almost do a whole case study on, whether it's everything from just the way that they created the different villains and the designs and the elements that went into them, and the fact that some stories were told for the first time, On the animated series, whether it's the creation of Harley Quinn, who is everywhere now, or you also have the creation of what became the canon Mr. Freeze origin story came from Heart of Ice. Right, exactly. Written by Paul Dini and took what was at that point, if we're going back to the Adam West show, a criminal in a cold suit who I think on that show was played by three different actors to one portrayal with a tragic backstory That is told so well in Batman the Animated Series. And again, it's just like 21 minutes going through the emotional beats of a full opera, a full movie, a full experience in this one episode that remains iconic for so many good reasons.
4: It's more or less kind of the epitome of what the show was going for. You have a villain who's amazingly sympathetic. Like you understand it's a Kill Bill episode. I'm vengeful. And I have a very good reason. And even Batman is like, "Whoa!" Like when it gets resolved, he's like, "No, it's not vengeance; it's justice." This guy's definitely going going to jail. So are you, Mister Freeze? He's the epitome of the show and that how they approach their villains. Two-Face became an amazingly sympathetic villain. Poison Ivy, who's an environmentalist, who's been driven to a point where she cannot take it anymore and she has to become a villain. Again, you can understand where they're coming from. It's not just like, you know, a you know snidely whiplash kind of character. It's like, no, you actually, with the exception of the Joker, you can definitely sympathize with all of the villains on some level.
0: I was going to make that exact same point because it does feel like he's the only one that's evil for evil's sake. It's fun evil, but he's evil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With Two-Face, the creative team even made sure that we got to see him as Harvey Dent for a few episodes before they did the Two-Face oh, yeah, origin completely. story. So yeah. you feel it when yeah. he turns. And you have, I think there was also a great episode, if I'm remembering right, uh, The Trial where Batman gets captured at Arkham Asylum and the villains have a mock trial for him. Mm -hmm. And the current DA has to defend him and Harvey Dent is the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. But the current DA makes the point uh, that all of the villains would have ended up exactly where they were, with or without Batman. Sure, the gimmicks might have been different, but this is what was important to these people and this is the directions that they went. And Heart of Ice is early enough, compared to Trial, which I think is fairly late in the show's run, Mm -hmm. I have to remember here that the DVD box set order might contradict the original run order of the right, episodes right. when they first aired. Heart of Ice is so early on that they hadn't even cast Mark Hamill as the Joker yet. When the show right. was first on his radar, I think he was probably like told by his agent, it's like, oh, we're we're going to be putting you on, uh, you're going to be on the Mr. Freeze episode. He's like, oh, am I Mr. Freeze? Well, no, you're, you're a character, uh, Ferris Boyle, the one who does wind up being responsible for the creation of Mr. Freeze. So he plays that part and then eventually settles into the role of the Joker later on that he's been playing for the better part of almost three decades. Sam Curry was the Joker. Initially, yeah, it was too dark. Right. right. And they (laughs) realized, yeah, this is not a kid's show. If we go with this version, we have to recast. And you get Mark Hamill. And in just so many ways, the voice informs the performance. Because I think uh, it might have been Ephraim Zimbals Jr., who played Alfred, who said this, if I'm remembering some of the interviews right. And he talked about how you might come in thinking, that it's like a dub that you see the animation and then you have to speak the part to match what's on screen, but it's the other way around. The voice is the heart of the performance. They take the audio and the portrayals from the actors and then animate to that. And so you have the visuals just built on this bedrock of Michael Ansara's performance as Mr. Freeze Joker for Mark Hamill, as well as Ferris Boyle in the episode heart of ice. And if you read the comics, you hear the voice of Kevin Conroy's Batman.
4: The cast would actually, instead of having one actor in one room, then two weeks later you film another actor, same scene, but in another room. Everybody was in the same room reacting off each other. Mark Hamill as the Joker is reacting against what Kevin Conroy is doing in real time. And the fact that, coupled with the fact that they animated off of the performances, this production was kind of next level. It set the bar for a lot of things down the road. So this was kind of the first, kind of the test for all of those quote-unquote bilingual media that you can kind of cross over and say, okay, kids can watch it, but adults can watch it too.
0: Heart of Ice. It is such an amazing episode. Again, the original retelling of the Mr. Freeze origin story, as it was then used, I almost don't want to bring it up, but you kind of have to, just within a few years later, I think it would have been five years later, was then used in Batman and Robin, and in everything that has come since, It, it, it then was used in the comics and brought the character really into like the top 10 of Batman's rogues gallery going forward.
4: Yeah, Mr. Freeze on this show, you can actually see the beginning and the end of his life. He's he's actually one of the characters where you see the whole gamut of emotions and life experiences. It starts with Heart of Ice, where he actually, he's already Mr. Freeze. But at one point, Mr. Freeze got his own animated movie, Sub-Zero. Then when they did the third season, you see another version of Mr. Freeze. And then when they did Batman Beyond, which is the... Batman 50 years in the future with the younger Batman, you see the end of Mr. Freeze's life and you see how he's kind of dealing with a, he's more or less a mortal at that time. And you see kind of that how that's resolved at the end of that show at the beginning of *Hard uh, Advice, we don't start with the origin story. I, I, I love it when, it, whenever you hear uh, someone commentate that says, "There's a rash of code related crimes," you know you're in. Eventually, Batman meets Mister Freeze. He stops his men, whatever they're doing, and he points to Mister Freeze
0: very dramatically and says,
4: "Freeze!" <laughs> you know,
0: right? That's Mister Freeze. That's Mister
4: Freeze to you. Do it. Do it again. Do it again.
0: That's Mister Freeze to you.
4: See, this is a man, I watched the episode earlier today. He has not seen the episode in <laughs> I don't know how long, yet he nails it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Oh, my word. Well, because it's so iconic. It's it completely... sticks with you going forward. I remember, again, thinking about like some of the commentary on the episode. They talked about how, in hindsight, they should have totally storyboarded the scene where you see what happened to him and his wife. Completely differently mm-hmm. because it's in black and white and, and almost supposed to be like CCTV cameras, but then it cuts to like 15 different angles as they as it goes through the scene. It's like it realistically should have been like bird's eye view, like one thing this whole time. But you see... The whole backstory of trying to cure his wife, putting her into cryo, and then Boyle coming in and disrupting the experiment and everything going downhill from there. But I think I'm skipping a few beats if there's other things you want to highlight.
4: No, 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 that's all good. Ferris Boyle, who's like the the villain of the piece, he's the guy who kind of sabotaged Mr. Freeze's experiment to save his wife. So Batman watches all this on videotape. He watches how Ferris Boyle destroys the experiment. But this is one of those things where... Yeah. Batman has all this technology. He has all these resources. It comes down to Afrit giving him
0: chicken soup, the only way to fight a cold,
4: only way to fight a cold, Exactly. See, again, (laughs) the stuff is stuck to our bones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, my word. Yeah. And the fact that that winds up being the weapon because freeze with his ice cannon. I mean, he's successful. He breaches the building where Boyle is being honored. And obviously what's going to come out after all of this is going to ruin Ferris Boyle as Batman intervenes, saves his life, breaks the casing around freezes head using the container of chicken soup.
4: Mm-hmm. And he says, he's like, what is that? He's like, it's the only way to fight a cold.
0: Also, I think as if I'm remembering right, again, it's been a while. Like after that containment is shattered, they actually, you would think that maybe okay without the dome over his head, his voice is clearer, but it was almost more distorted. Yeah. It's like, Nora. Right. Nor as he goes down. Exactly. And just so many elements of that portrayal and the way that they used it that works so well. And just I don't remember the all of it, but I remember the end of the quote where he's like cold, unforgiving ice as they're using the weapon on the building. It yeah, just yeah. yeah, so many amazing moments in that episode. Brian Razier, thank you so much for your time. Oh not a problem, thank you. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke, our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahofsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you, John, for recording this episode in your studio space. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for joining us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. Shout Productions
4: Wayne Shout